ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. There's a big game of football tonight and I've been invited to watch it. So I'm pretty sure it's just up here. Uh, I've had to make a U-turn, but we're on track. It's in a house in the Hunter region of New South Wales, about an hour from Newcastle. The host says there'll be a few beers, footy on the big screen. What he calls a quiet night in. Hey mate. G'day, how you going? This is the host. We'll call him Andy. He doesn't want us to use his real name for reasons that'll soon become obvious. Andy's in his 30s. He does shift work, and when he's got time off, he likes to let his hair down. So just uh, here for the footy tonight. <clears throat> um, there'll be a couple others here later. It's just me and me, mate, now. And then, um... We're hanging in his lounge room, and Andy's mate is on a couch figuring out what beds to put on. He's not much of a talker. Hello, g'day mate. It's a scene that's happening in ordinary lounge rooms across Australia as people gather around the telly ahead of the game. But then this happens. I just send a message to my contact and we should get a reply shortly. Andy fires up a text to a dealer. It's not the kind of thing people would normally associate with a midweek game of footy. Had a little bit of code in there, but it's pretty casual. He says for him and lots of other blokes he knows, this is pretty standard. So you don't actually say, write the word cocaine? No. no. And then how long do you think until it'll get dropped off won't be long? or Could be as quick as half an hour. People probably associate cocaine use with A-list parties and late nights at nightclubs, so it could sound strange to hear someone ordering it for a quiet night in front of the footy. And that's partly why I'm here in this lounge room. I'm trying to understand how we've arrived at a point where cocaine use became so, well, so normal. Sure enough, just as Andy predicted, a dialer dealer is out the front within half an hour. Yeah, so that's, that's him now. And Andy heads out to complete the deal. Hard cash for cocaine. I follow him out, but I've been warned by the ABC's legal department not to be on the spot when Andy collects his cargo. So I hang back a bit in the driveway. Car's pulled up just across the road. He's, he's going over there, chatting to the guy. Andy's back seconds later. It was that easy, kind of like ordering a pizza. My name's Ty King, and for the past six months, I've been looking at how cocaine gets into Australia. I first became interested in the tsunami of cocaine hitting our shores while working on a daily news program at ABC Newcastle last year. Back then, it seemed like every month there was a new headline. Newcastle Harbour was today at the centre of a joint covert operation. More than $20 million worth of cocaine. This was a well-drilled professional group targeting our, our community with his poison. I wanted to go behind the headlines and figure out how cocaine gets into Australia. Where are the weaknesses in our border security? And what's enabled cocaine to come out of the nightclub and into suburban houses? 
a little ziplock. There's two there, is that two grams? Yep, yep. Andy whips out a credit card. So just do what you call fluffing out. Just breaks it up and spreads it out into a, a finer substance. Just rolling up a note and uh, just inhale it. The moment cocaine hits Andy's nose, it's reached the end of a 14,000 kilometre journey that started out in the Andes. We retrace the route that cocaine like this travels, but we start closer to home, about 50 kilometres north of Andy on the outskirts of Newcastle. How can buying cocaine be as easy as ordering pizza? And how can people like Andy's dialer dealer be ready within an hour to drop off product? I've arranged to meet someone who knows a lot about cocaine's direct route from supplier to dealer. Hi guys. How are you? Good Vince, how are you? Nice to meet you. Yeah, likewise. That's former New South Wales police detective Vince Hurley, and I'm meeting him at a pub in the harbourside suburb of Carrington. My colleague Mietta Clark has been working on this story with me, and she's here too. Vince is a criminologist at Macquarie Uni, but for years he worked as an undercover cop infiltrating cocaine syndicates up and down the east coast of Australia. Vince's job, essentially, was to pretend he was a criminal. You lived by your wits to a degree, so it's not something that everyone's suited to. There has to be a degree of um, intrinsic or natural about the individual to be able to portray themselves to be someone else. So if you don't have that within your character, then it's unlikely that you'll be able to sell yourself to be someone that you're not. He was hunting traffickers in the cat and mouse game played out by criminals and law enforcement. So we're out here. Can I take you to a place where I did a drug job? Absolutely. That place was a drug distribution point. These tend to be located close to a port and close to arterial main roads, so drugs can be moved quickly to other locations. So we're heading out to a suburb um, outside of Newcastle, and it was a job where cocaine importation was coming into Sydney. The drug was trafficked up to um, Newcastle, and we're going to the place where I met the uh, drug trafficker, and the purpose um, of seeing him was to negotiate the price of the cocaine and from there he was going to organise the distribution of it. The trafficker Vince was going to meet was also a used car salesman. A very successful one and he used the used car sales as a front. Now no one would consider him to be a major drug trafficker in New South Wales. It's been a long time since Vince was last here doing cocaine deals and it takes a while to find the location. When we do, it looks completely different. Yeah, it was in there, down in there. The land's been freshly cleared for a housing estate. So this was the site? Yeah, this was the site. There would have been about oh, eight to ten different industrial complex, different things. Uh, but uh, no, <laughs> there's nothing here now. It's all flattened. At the time, Vince was about a year and a half into the undercover operation. He tells me it was two in the morning when he arrived, alone, to make the deal. 
Um, inside it was really spartan. Uh, the concrete floor was really rough. He, <laughs> he had an office um, which was internally built uh, in the back left-hand corner. He said, oh, I've got a couple of ounces up in this internal office in the ceiling. And that's where, just where it is. And he said, you can go and get it now. And because I was a bit skeptical thinking, oh, he's gonna do a runner or he's gonna rip me off somehow. So I, I decided that to do what he said. He was at the factory to record the transaction using a concealed recording device. And I, he gave me, <laughs> he gave me a chair and I've seen the, the drugs were there and I'm, I'm crawling over on my hands. <laughs> but things didn't go entirely to plan. I'm crawling on my hands and knees to get the drugs and I've got my hands on the, on the, on the drugs and I'm shuffling back and I fell through the roof. <laughs> I kid you not. I fell through the roof of the homemade office and all he could say was, are the drugs okay? And I was rolling around on the ground in pain. <laughs> it's something you would have seen out of, oh, I don't know, Beverly Hills Cop or something. Not James Bond. <laughs> no, no James Bond, that's for sure. <laughs> Vince is laughing about it now, but it shows how quickly things can go pear-shaped. Undercover operations like this are happening every day around Australia, away from the public eye. And Vince says they usually pay off because eventually someone will make a mistake. Police arrested that trafficker a couple of days later in Sydney, along with two South American men in Goulburn. They'd poured liquid cocaine into sleeping bags and smuggled it into Australia in a backpack. Before cocaine can end up in the roof of an internal office on the outskirts of Newcastle, it needs to get across the Australian border. And one of the weakest points in our borders are our ports. New details have emerged about Wednesday's secretive police operation in Newcastle Harbour, which ended in a massive cocaine bust. In the early hours of the morning at the start of this year, a Newcastle port worker flicked on his torch and spotted a couple of unusual shapes in the water. They turned out to be scuba divers. Police would later allege that the divers, both Norwegian nationals, were diving for 82 kilograms of cocaine. What the port worker witnessed that morning was potentially a major crime unfolding. The cocaine was attached to the hull of a ship that had just arrived from China, and police allege the scuba divers were retrieving it, though they both deny being involved in the importation. On the day, authorities were all over it. They had intelligence that this particular ship was carrying an illicit cargo. Police escorted the ship into the harbour, set up a surveillance operation, and then they waited. Two men were arrested this afternoon at Honeysuckle. Police would later allege the two Norwegian men were part of an international crime syndicate and they'd flown into Australia specifically to dive and retrieve the cocaine. Vince agrees to show us around the Newcastle Harbour so we can see why it's so attractive to crime syndicates. It's the world's largest coal port, and as we drive across the island in the middle of the harbour, the scars of industry are everywhere. Mounds of coal several storeys high loom up over the road, and huge cranes jut into the skyline. Smokestacks from factories spew fumes across the harbour as tugboats guide a huge cargo ship through the mouth of the river. 
We pull up at a grassy area between two fenced off industrial sites. Vince casts an expert eye on the industrial landscape in front of us. Anyone could bring drugs in here. Just have a look at it. There's no one around. Unbelievable. As we get out of the car, Vince tells me what he sees from a smuggler's perspective. If you just look at the port here, it would be, I don't know, maybe five, if not ten kilometres long, the canal. So anywhere along here, and it's fairly isolated, we're out of here now and there's no one around with the exception of the boats in the harbour. So anyone could just jump this wire fence here or easily cut the bolt here on the gate, just walk in and go under the water and retrieve the drugs. The area is open. Even if you looked over the other side of the harbour, I can't see any port authorities. I can't see anyone walking on the wharf. I can't see any workers. So it's ideal for the picking. Australians are hungry for this drug. And according to Vince, the cartels know it. In fact, Australia has the world's highest prevalence of cocaine use. He says cartels are even aware of which big events create demand. Footy finals, the Melbourne Cup, Mardi Gras. It's an appealing and lucrative market. We're geographically isolated and we're willing to pay top dollar. Much of the coke that comes into Australia arrives by sea and according to Vince, the port of Newcastle is a good choice as a point of importation. It's deep, it's busy, and Vince says, as a regional port, it's typically not as well surveilled as a capital city one. Geographically, it's almost in the centre between Brisbane and Melbourne, where the bulk of the population is, and it's really isolated, as we can see out here at the moment. That is a godsend for organised crime. Vince says cartels are finding more sophisticated ways of hiding the drug, by welding it onto the hull of ships beneath the waterline, or hiding it inside deep water sea chests. If you looked at a cargo ship, as you can see one out here now, it's an insignificant object on the bottom of a hull, so even if the captain didn't know it was there, they're not going to feel any drag whatsoever. From a policing perspective, then, it's, it's like finding a needle in a haystack? Yeah, it is, or a grain of cocaine in an ounce. <laughs> God, have a go at it. It's huge. That's the sound of a cocaine lab getting blown up by anti-narcotic cops in Colombia. You can hear a Black Hawk helicopter whirring in the background. The anti-narcotic cops shot extensive footage of the lab before they blew it sky high. On the footage, an officer tests some of the cocaine they found. He puts it into a test tube and mixes it with a chemical that turns blue on contact. They've given us a copy of this footage so we can see exactly the kind of place where the vast majority of cocaine that enters Australia comes from. It's an open air tent with a muddy floor in the middle of what looks like a rainforest. There are white jerry cans and huge blue tubs filled with white liquid scattered everywhere. To one side there's a bunch of rustic looking stoves. Labs like this where pure cocaine is made, have been pretty busy lately. To understand why, I've reached out to Colombian academic Angelica Duran-Martinez. Okay, so in very simple terms, I will say it starts with coca cultivation. So right now there are about 200,000 hectares of coca cultivated in Colombia. 
Angelic is an Associate Professor of Political Science at the University of Massachusetts Lowell, and she's been looking at drug trafficking in Latin America for more than 15 years. She tells me the explosion in supply of cocaine around the world has roots in an old conflict. It starts in the 1960s, with farmers in the rural areas of Colombia banding together to fight inequality. For decades, a leftist peasant guerrilla group called Fuerzas Armadas Revolucionarias de Colombia, or FARC, was at war with the Colombian government. Until recently, it was one of the longest-running civil wars in the world, and part of the funding for the insurgents came from the trafficking of cocaine. In 2012, the Colombian government started negotiating a peace agreement, but before peace talks could start, the FARC asked for a gesture of goodwill. Right before the peace talks, the president decided to stop fumigation in 2015. And that was because that was one of the demands within the negotiation with the FARC. When the Colombian government stopped fumigating coca crops, farmers started to grow more. They invested in irrigation and fertiliser, and the coca plants left alone were finally able to grow for a couple of years and reach their full productive potential. When FARC soldiers started to lay down their weapons, other armed groups started moving in on their territory. So as more organisations were coming in, that also starts creating more push factors for, for coca cultivation to start increasing again because those organisations were trying to cope territories and to engage in the, in the illegal markets and the, in the spaces, the territorial spaces that had been left by the FARC. In 2016, the peace agreement was signed and the Colombian government started to provide incentives for coca farmers to substitute coca with other crops. But that didn't work. In fact, it had the opposite effect. Farmers who'd stopped growing coca or who hadn't been growing coca at all started planting it to take advantage of the state incentive. So suddenly, there's a whole lot of farmers with coca crops and the result? The amount of coca-growing land has more than tripled in the last decade, and so has the supply of cocaine. When I asked the Colombian anti-narcotics authorities about how much cocaine they've seized that was bound for Australia, they give me a number that seems minuscule. 10 kilograms. Of course, this doesn't include the huge amounts that go via a third country. I've come to Sydney to meet up with Border Force. It's on the front line of Australia's battle with cocaine syndicates, and I've been granted a behind-the-scenes tour of Port Botany so I can see for myself what the efforts look like and the sheer scale of what the team is up against. I'm with Mal Nimmo, one of the commanders here. We're standing outside a container ship and the gangplank looks busy. So the, um, the detector dog unit, and uh, the dog and its handler and a couple of uh, members of the maritime unit are now boarding the ship. I'm used to seeing these ships out on the horizon when I'm surfing, but up close, they're gigantic. And that's one of the things that makes Border Force's job so challenging. So you say this is a, a typical, the typical size for a container ship? Yeah, yeah, so this one um, has about, apparently about oh, 5,400 containers on board. Um, but yeah, as you, know, you can see, there's any number of similar vessels around the, this port. As the team sweeps across the ship, Mal tells me that Border Force's cocaine detection units, both at sea and airports, have never been busier. He puts the increase in drug seizures down to good police work. 
By way of, um, I guess, comparison, in 21-22, there was a total of, and this is across all streams, not just um, sea cargo, there was 2,308 detections, individual detections of, uh, of cocaine, which is about 1.8 tonne. Whereas in the year to date, 22-23, uh, as at the end of April, that had increased to 3,656 detections to that part of the year and for about 4.3 tonnes worth of cocaine. In other words, the amount of cocaine detected by Australian Border Force has more than doubled in nine months. It's a whole lot more than the 10 kilograms the Colombian authorities managed to intercept. Mal says that cocaine traffickers are getting smarter and more sophisticated at moving their product, starting with what's called the rip-on, rip-off method. The criminal syndicates will use um, legitimate containers that are being used for legitimate trade and use trusted insiders to put drugs into the container and then have someone at the other end either um, what they call rip it off, i.e. take it out of there. Then there's the mother-daughter method. Um, there are hull attachments that they do, mother-daughter um, importations whereby they'll you know, drop um, things over the side of the boat at sea for another smaller vessel to pick it up. As we chat, the dog unit flies past nooks and crannies much faster than any human could, and they're heading back down the plank after 20 minutes. Mal tells me Border Force uses a mix of technology, old and new, to track down illicit substances. They have a huge scanner that allows them to screen a whole container in one go. But generally, it's only used when dogs or intel have detected something. If any anomalies or uh, anything of interest is determined as a result of that, um, our first uh, point of contact is the AFP. They, they're the agency that lead um, you know, importation investigations in this country and then we'll hand over the matter to them and assist where we can. We reached out to the AFP to ask about this, but it declined to comment. Throughout my conversation with Mal, I can't help thinking there's like this complex game of hide-and-seek taking place. The cartels develop a method of smuggling drugs, the authorities figure it out. The cartels develop a new method, and on it goes. And while all Border Force's detection methods are useful, the reality is there's a lot of cocaine getting into the community, and a whole lot of containers at ports around Australia just aren't being examined. I don't think anybody pretends that we check every container. The demand, unfortunately, the demand for drugs in this country is quite high. That's not a, a particular secret. Um, and, you know, particularly with cocaine, the prices that can be obtained here drive that activity. Mal says that once containers clear a port and they're not deemed suspicious, they often end up at storage facilities, container yards. These places are pretty common around our waterways, but they're unremarkable, and you've probably driven past a few without noticing. The thing is, they're outside Border Force's jurisdiction. I meet back up with my colleague Mayetta in a Bunnings car park on the outskirts of Newcastle. We take a drive down the Pacific Highway in search of a container yard. That's one there. Yeah, there, you can see it. We can see all the containers here. I'll just pull up. Nice one. I reckon pull in over there. Yeah, so what we've... One of the things we've learned is that... is that if... We know that millions of containers don't get checked by border force. There's just too many of them coming in. So the next thing they do, once they clear the port, is they end up at a container storage facility like the one we're sitting at the front of. And from what I've been told, 
there isn't much onus on the owners of these facilities to really do any due diligence and check what's inside their containers. So unless uh, police have intel about a shipment, um, once it's here, it's pretty much in the clear. Yeah, it seems like from the criminal's point of view, they've, they've succeeded in getting cocaine through to the community. Should we go and check it out? Yep, let's go. We walk through a tall barbed wire fence and pass rows of 20-foot shipping containers in different colours. Yellow, grey, silver, blue, maroon. And they're piled two and three high. We head for the side office. It's a small grey shipping container with a glass sliding door. Hey, good mate, how are you? actually from the ABC's background briefing program. Mm-hmm. Um, we've been investigating a story about drug importation mm-hmm. and one of the things we've been told is that when a container gets through a port mm-hmm. they often end up in a place like this mm-hmm. and we're just trying to find out a little bit about what sort of screening measures um, or due diligence uh, a company such as this one might do. I mean, one of the things we're looking at is mm-hmm. border forces resources yeah, yeah. and basically from what we understand if um, border force don't have any intel and mm-hmm. the cops don't have any intel mm-hmm. once it's through the border mm-hmm. it's that's like Basically, anyone that brings a like a dealer own or like a customer own container has to sign a a, a a waiver a waiver to say there's been no dangerous goods chemicals or anything like that stored in the container um, they have to sign off on that before we'll accept the container. And you um, just take that at face value? Yeah, that's all we can do, yeah, right. yeah. So let me get this straight. If you're importing cocaine and you do manage to get it into Australia through a port, you can store it at a container yard unchecked by simply signing a waiver. And remember, Border Force admit they don't have the resources to examine most containers. So is it just a losing battle? And if it is, can we afford to lose it? According to Vince, the stakes are higher than we may think because stopping cocaine isn't just about cocaine anymore. It's also preventing corruption within society more generally. The cocaine trade in Australia is so lucrative that it brings with it the massive risks that undermine the whole notion of the rule of law and policing within Australia. The cartels have so much money, it is easy for them to throw hundreds of thousands of dollars at a police officer and they don't stop to think about the long-term consequences of that one-off action. Vince says that once cartels have turned one official, they focus on turning a second, then a third. And before too long, the peer pressure within a team to continue corrupt behaviour becomes enormous. So on the surface, the consequences may seem fairly simple. Yes, if we stop it, we will stop the drug use in society. But it goes much deeper than that. Once it gets into the criminal justice system, once there's a compromising of um, the courts, for example, then it just permeates like a cancer. No, I'm not scared of being caught with it. Andy's not too worried about AFP breaking down his front door, and he doesn't reckon any other users he knows are either. 
As he puts it, cocaine's just everywhere. Yeah, just definitely on the social scene. It's, it's everywhere. More the East Coast, I'd say. I ask Andy what he likes so much about the drug. It's a strange question for him. What do I like about it? Probably the fact it can, you know, triple the, the amount of alcohol that you'd normally have in it and keep you to a certain level of straightness that balances it out for you. It's a little bit of a rush, but also the social side, a few with everyone that's doing it as well. He doesn't know much about where the drug comes from and he isn't in any hurry to give it up. In fact, short of a catastrophe, Andy reckons his drug-taking career still has a way to go. What would make me stop? Probably, probably an overdose from what I've heard with people with other things. It's pretty scary, but I don't think that's going to happen. I haven't heard of one happening, so... Look, maybe old age as well. It's about the only thing. Background briefing sound producers are Lila Shuna and Ingrid Wagner. Sound engineering by Isabella Tropiano. Fact checking by Ben Sveen. Additional reporting by Mayetta Clark. Our supervising producer is Mario Christodoulou. The executive producer is Fanu Falali. I'm Ty King. You can subscribe to Background Briefing on the ABC Listen app. Thanks for listening. <laughs>